Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. City News. Hello, good evening. Welcome to Eyewitness News coming to you live from our studios at number 11, Dr. Martin Loop in Adabraka in Accra. My name is Salom Adunu. Tonight I'm here with Rita Mensa. Coming up over the next 90 minutes, Speaker of Parliament Abang Babin cited for contempt for leading Parliament to continue processes towards the passage of the anti LGBT bill when there was a pending application for injunction on the matter at the Supreme Court. Also coming up, Fix the Country Movement, a pressure group withdraws petition to the president filed some 18 months ago on the removal of the chairperson and deputy chairpersons of the electoral commission in connection with what the petitioners call the criminal disenfranchisement of Santro Kofi, Akpafu, Lolobi and Likpe people in the 2020 elections. More on this later. Still on eyewitness news, government of Ghana commences the domestic debt exchange in respect of Ghana's US dollar denominated uh, domestic bonds. We'll bring you more details on this. Stay with 97.3 CTFM uh, for more on this and other stories on Eyewitness News as well as in business. Eyewitness News is, is live across the country on all our affiliates and around the globe at citynewsroom.com. Your comments are welcome via WhatsApp line 0549986996. You can follow me on Twitter at Selom. I don't know the hashtag as always. Is City Newsroom. Now to our very first story. A member of the Constitutional Legal and Parliamentary Affairs Committee of Parliament, the Honorable Mahama Yariga, says Parliament will not be deterred by legal actions in its quest to pass the promotion of proper sexual human rights and Ghanaian family values bill, also known as the anti-LGBT bill. The Supreme Court is being asked to impose sanctions on the Speaker of Parliament, Abang Babin, for allowing the House to proceed with a debate on the anti-LGBT bill despite pending legal actions. One of the two citizens who have sued the Speaker of Parliament and the Attorney General over the anti-LGBT bill, Dr. Amanda Odoi, contends that the Speaker has treated court processes with disdain and contempt. Reacting to the suit, the Member of Parliament for Boko Central, Mahama Ayariga, says the content of the suit is flawed. Well, I haven't really <coughs> paid attention to the details of the uh, court action. Well, what I saw flying on social media platforms is a writ, uh, a Supreme Court action that she has uh, initiated. Um, and then when I scanned through, I noticed that the main claim is that the proponents of the LGBTQ, you know, um, proper human sexual uh, practices uh, bill uh, have not uh, provided a fiscal impact analysis of the bill before uh, it was admitted in Parliament and being considered by uh, Parliament. But I doubt if the Supreme Court is the proper place to go to because the requirement of uh, fiscal impact analysis is provided for by a statute, not the Constitution. 
it is the Public Financial Management Act that has a provision requiring that any bill being introduced into Parliament should have a fiscal impact uh, uh, analysis. And so if you are talking about an institution not complying with that, that's a statutory matter. It is not an issue of constitutional interpretation and enforcement. And so I doubt if the Supreme Court is the proper place to, to go to. So I haven't paid attention to it because I took a view of the cuff of my head that it's, it's not going to see the light of day in the Supreme Court. I have not seen any order from the Supreme Court restraining Parliament, so I don't know the basis of her claim. Unless she's saying that simply because she has filed a writ in the Supreme Court, Parliament should stop doing its work. It doesn't work that way. I think that there's commitment uh, by the Speaker and uh, the <coughs> House generally to go ahead with the processes leading to the passage of the, the bill. And so I, I don't think that uh, the action that they are taking uh, has the capacity to restrain Parliament from doing its work. You heard a member of Parliament for Boku Central, Mahama Ayariga. Let's hit the phone lines now and speak to one of the proponents of the bill, the Honorable uh, Nelson Roxin Dapiamapo, who is member of Parliament for South Dai. Hello, good evening, sir. Welcome to Eyewitness News. Have you cited uh, this application? Uh, thank you very much, and good evening to your listeners. I have not cited the application, but um, um, I heard about it this this uh, mid-morning when we were in court in respect of my um, brother Kwesin's matter. Then my attention was drawn to it that somebody has, uh, uh, not somebody, but the party who proceeded to the high court in respect of this matter has cited the speaker in content proceeding, so there's some application of that nature pending. So, I see. well, I, I so I spoke to it uh, on some other forum this afternoon. I see. Does this throw it spanners in in the works of of your group um, that you know this you've been trying to do? Uh, fortunately, securing the buy-in of all 275 members of parliament. Here we are uh, being hit. Uh, by a suit, and you're, I mean, the, the head of the house, the speaker himself, has been cited for contempt. How does it make you feel? Uh, Salam, first of all, the the court is not this jurisdiction in this matter. The court lacks jurisdiction to go into this matter. But, uh, but, but, but who, who, determ no, who, who determines hold, that? I mean, hold, hold on. Is the court itself that will make that determination? And I'm making the legal argument that as we speak, the bill is still in the process of being passed into law. So the court cannot be called in to injunct parliament from undertaking its duties under law. It is only when the bill becomes law that an aggrieved person can go to court and say that in, in breach of section 100 of the PFM Act 2016, Act 921, parliament failed to comply with the requirements and there and that. And therefore, the, the 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 new enactment should be should be struck now as null and void. That is the only time you can you can you can bring a judicial a judicial remedy in the matter. But as the bill is still going through the processes, the court the court's jurisdiction it, it cannot kick in now. 
I, I see. So despite, of course, so that determination will have to be made by the court when the court sits to properly consider the issues, whether it has jurisdiction to consider so the same court, or not. The court has no jurisdiction to Yes, but the, but the court must sit for it to determine whether it has jurisdiction exactly. or not. The court will sit, but I, I know, I know that one of the legal, preliminary legal arguments that the lawyers in the matter on behalf of speaker will be raising will be this. The court has no jurisdiction at all at this stage. And and so and mutatis mutandis, the same applies to the other party who has who has also gone to the Supreme Court, um, um, pursuant to some allegation of breach of uh, Article uh, One Hundred Six of the Constitution. Again, the Supreme Court, the matter does not concern the Supreme Court at all. If there is an allegation of breach of the Constitution, you have to wait until the law the the bill becomes law. At this stage. At this stage, so long. our bill is a near expression of intent. In fact, we can decide to withdraw the bill tomorrow. What about that? So a bill at this stage cannot be attacked by a judicial process at all. You know, the bill, the, the bill becoming law and somebody going to the Supreme Court to challenge it, ETC, ETC, that will be the judicial review jurisdiction of the court the person may be invoking. But this one, the person is saying that, you know, you do not have to continue with it at all. Of course, the jurisdiction over the matter should be determined by the court as it sits. But once an application for injunction has been filed, you know, against the process, what really is the law? Shouldn't this operate as a stay on the processes in Parliament? Has Speaker been served with the injunction process? Do you have that? Do you know that for a fact? Yeah, they, they've deposed to, they've, they've, they've attached to the, the processes uh, a search report that indicates that Speaker's office was served. Speaker's office is not Speaker. In, in the Constitution, a service of court process on the Speaker, not Speaker's office. So we can all speak law in this matter. Speaker's office is not Speaker. An MP's office is not the MP. A clerk's office is not a clerk to parliament. So we all do the right thing. Even though this is not the even though this is not the originating process, it couldn't be filed on his office rather than the person of the speaker? The constitution says we are serving a process on the speaker. It didn't say the speaker's office. If the constitution intended the speaker's office, it would have said so expressly. That the constitution said serving a process on a member of parliament. It didn't say the office of the member of parliament. And in reference to the clerk, it said on the clerk to parliament, not the office of the clerk to parliament. So if they want to rely on the law, they should do so properly. But what is your thinking around uh, the two suits that have come and, and the extra effort by one of the plaintiffs, um, Dr. Amanda Odoe? These are clearly sponsored litigation. It's sponsored from sponsored from from which quarters? I don't know, but I'm saying that they are sponsored litigation, and they are they are doing forum shopping. So they've decided that you go to the high court in respect of section 100 of PM, PFM Act and 2016 Act 921, and let the other person goes to the Supreme Court in respect of the constitutional provision underpinning the procedure in respect of how bills will be laid in Parliament and all that. So clearly. It's a carefully calculated attempt to frustrate the bill becoming a law. But we are saying that there's no requirement that bars the, 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 the sponsors of the bill producing a fiscal impact analysis in the course of the bill being passed into law.
at all. At all. So the fiscal impact analysis can always be produced before the bill is passed into law. In any case, the government does have tons of bills in parliament without the fiscal impact analysis. But we are running them through the mill to become law. What about that? But that doesn't mean that if 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 wrong is also happening elsewhere, I, I agree. and this I is agree. brought to somebody's attention, the I person agree. should not take steps. I, I agree, but I'm only saying that it has become the practice in the house that the fiscal impact analysis requirement is is not material. It's a mere demanding. It's a mere irregularity that can be that can be rectified any time with the course of the bill becoming a law. So the fiscal impact anal analysis, the absence of same, is never injurious, is never fatal to any bill becoming a law. I see. So not even the fact that because this is a private member's bill, it imposes some fiscal uh, liabilities on the state, uh, for which reason we need to understand what the fiscal impact analysis will be, will matter Salam. in this matter. Salam. Salam. There is no indication that it will impose some financial burden on the public sphere. The requirement of law is that conduct a fiscal impact analysis. The fiscal impact analysis does not mean that by 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 any means necessary, the impact analysis will show that there will be a positive a positive burden on the public purse. No, it can actually tell that upon upon analyzing the fiscal impact of the implementation of the law, there will be no there will be no burden on the public purse. The, the the impact analysis can indicate that. It is only it is only a matter, of course, that the impact analysis must must accompany the bill. The its absence is not fatal to the bill becoming law. I see. Uh, we want to thank you so much, uh, the Honourable Roxin Nelson Dapamako, Member of Parliament for South Diane, proponent of the anti-LGBT law or bill, actually, for speaking to us on that matter. If, as you may be aware by now, uh, a private citizen. Who uh, who is challenging the or who who, who uh, two private citizens actually have gone to court to challenge the basis of uh, the 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 anti LGBT bill one at the Supreme Court and one at the High Court over citing various grounds. Now the one at the Supreme Court uh, also filed an application to injunct the process from continuing in Parliament. Notwithstanding that, uh, the Speaker of the House uh, led the House to debate the bill and then you know, uh, pr process the bill for the next stage. Now, this person, Dr. Amanda Odoy, now goes to the Supreme Court to say that the Speaker of Parliament and the Attorney General, Attorney General as a nominal defendant, uh, have have been in contempt of court because, by law, once a process, uh, there's an application to injunct a process, even though the application may not have been heard, the, the mere filing of the application should operate as a stay on their processes. So that is what we have been discussing and we just heard the Honorable Roxy Nelson Dapamako who is saying that he does not think that the court itself has jurisdiction over the matter and a few other things he has said. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. A few of your messages that have come to is Alex Duane in London says, Ghanaians don't want LGBT. Let's all wait and see whether the president will sign. Uh, Fiamongo in Abor says, so parliament doesn't work on their own again. Do they work under the court now? Mr. Speaker, we are behind you. Uh, Alex Kofi Yarini in Adenta Commandos Research says, the court should bear in mind that it is the 275 members of parliament that passed the anti-LGBT bill. Not passed, but uh, progressed it to another stage and not the speaker. 
uh, Jones Adabo Adoboy in La says, Good evening, Salam. This attempt by faceless people to tout the hard work of the speaker against the anti uh, uh, okay. anti LGBT bill is dead on arrival. We know those behind it. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. We'll take a short break, return with more. Don't go away. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Oh yeah, welcome back to Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. Let's do some more stories now. The Ministers for Finance, Education and Food and Agriculture are expected to appear before Parliament on Tuesday, July 18, 2023 to brief the House on challenges confronting the National Food Buffer Stock Company. This follows the Speaker's directive to the Business Committee of the House to summon the Ministers over the picketing at the Food Buffer Stock Company by the National Food Suppliers Association due to a debt owed by the government. The first Deputy Majority Whip, Lydia Seram Al-Hassan, made this known while presenting the business statement for the upcoming week in Parliament. Head on to your directive on Friday, 7 July 2023, the Business Committee 2023, to the Business Committee to program the Ministers responsible for finance, education, food and agriculture to appear to the House, to appraise to the House on the challenges confronting the National Food Company Limited. The committee has accordingly programmed the ministers to attend upon Parliament on Tuesday, 18 July, and brief honorable members on the matter. Honorable Speaker, a joint caucus meeting is proposed to be held on Wednesday, 19 July, 2023, after adjournment. Urgent pertinent matters would be discussed. In this regard, all honorable members are encouraged to avail themselves at the meeting. Now, the Finance Minister, Ken Oferiata, is also expected to present the mid-year budget review to Parliament on July 25, 2023. Honourable Speaker, pertinent to the Public Financial Management Act 2016 at 1 at 9.21, the Honourable Minister for Finance is expected to present the media review of the budget statement and economic policies of the government of Ghana for the 2023 financial year to this honorable house on the on Tuesday 25th of July 2023 honorable members are therefore to take note of this day and avail themselves for the presentation. You heard the first Deputy Majority Whip, Lydia Seram Al-Hassan. To other stories, the caterer for the Binduri Community Day Senior High School in the Upper East Region has resumed cooking after an intervention by the Member of Parliament of the constituency, Abdullah Abanga. Speaking to Eyewitness News yesterday, the Member of Parliament said he had spoken to the caterer and she had prepared to return to cook for the students as of Friday, 14th July. Two days ago, I, I got the information uh, about the, the <clears throat> failure of the caterer to cook for the hot meal that is being provided by government to students. 
and as a result, the students were rioting. So we've taken steps, and uh, I can tell you that uh, as, at the, as at this moment, it, it shouldn't be an issue again because the Ketra has been mobilized. Uh, I just spoke to her a while ago. Tomorrow, she will be back on campus to cook for the students. So uh, it shouldn't be a problem again. It wasn't closed down as such. It's just the first and second year students who said that they would not uh, go to classes if they don't get uh, their, their, their hot meal. Otherwise, uh, form three students are still on campus. And so it's just a matter of uh, <clears throat> once this information goes out there, uh, the, the authorities will invite them to come back, uh, uh, come and uh, continue with their studies. That was the Member of Parliament for the Binduri uh, constituency, Abdullah Abanga. City News checks and the school indicates the Ketra Nyaba Mary is back and she said she was able to mobilize the needed items due to the assistance by the Member of Parliament. I decided to cook on Monday when the issue arrived, but um, the MP of Binduri, Honorable Abanga, was at the Ministry of Education and made sure my checks were written I'm paid, all my arrears have been paid, except those that we are yet to retire. And I thank him so much. And he has donated uh, 25 bags of rice to me to help feed the students. I'm so grateful. And I thank the government for this uh, free senior high because it has helped our younger ones to go to school. They are all educated and all that. So we thank him for this program and we pray that it will go on because it's helping our future leaders for all of them to be to become uh, educated and better people in future that was the caterer for the Binduri SHS Nyaba Mary speaking to City News. The Binduri District Director for Education, Mr. John Jagri Soka, has disclosed that the Member of Parliament has donated some food supplies to support the caterer to continue cooking. He also informed students that their other concerns would be addressed. I am happy to announce to you also that the Honourable Member of Parliament for Binduri Honorable Abdullah Abanga has donated 25 bags of rice. <laughs> to support the caterer to continue to feed you. That apart, the other issues that were raised by your, your juniors are being taken care of. Uh, the toilet issue is being attended to, and uh, the issue of your PE vests, their PE vests will be given to them when they resume on Monday. So we are going to be tackling the issues head on, bit by bit, hoping that at the end of the day, everything will be okay with all of us. You heard the District Director of Education, Mr. John Jagri Soka, speaking. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. Now, the 46 petitioners from the Fix the Country movement who filed an impeachment petition against the chairperson of the Electoral Commission, Jean Mensa, and the deputies have withdrawn the petition. The petition was filed in January 2022, alleging that the Electoral Commission had egregiously misconducted itself, denying the citizens of Santro Kofi 
Akpafu, Lolobi, and Likpe, also known as Sal, the right to vote in the 2020 parliamentary elections. Benjamin Dako is one of the petitioners and is joining us on the line to help us appreciate really why they decided to withdraw uh, their petition. Hello, good evening, sir. Welcome to Eyewitness News. Uh, why are you withdrawing the petition? It takes time to, to some of these results, but why did you decide to withdraw the petition? Uh, so, we decided to withdraw the, the petition because we realized that the constitutional process uh, was being manipulated and delayed by the by the actors and those that are in charge of protecting the, the constitution. Uh, we do not want to waste uh, any more time and resources on an exercise that we felt was being uh, procedurally and structurally being delayed by, by the elements of, of the judiciary. Um, so that was just the main reason why. And we also do not want to legitimize the process. That was clearly by us. And compromise. Um, we believe that there are other equal ways that we could use to demand and hold the Electoral Commission accountable. I see. But what do you mean by you felt the process was not going to was not going to be fair and was not going to be proper? Uh, there, there's a way it, it runs. You make a petition or you you submit a petition to uh, the president. The president transmits same to the chief justice, and the chief justice kicks it up from there. And from what we know. The petition got to the chief justice, and the chief justice was in the process of, of doing the other things necessary, as per Article One Four Six. So why will you chicken out in the last in the in the last minute when or in midstream when when nothing much has happened? Okay, so if if I should give like a, a step down, break down of what happened before we go to this point, mm -hmm. um, even right on the onset when we submitted the first document, uh, where alerted or told again that there were some portions of the documents that were missing. How they got missing, we don't know because these were verified files. We had to check everything before we submitted it. So to have portions of it... They said uh, portions of the document, it. how? Like pages yes. of the document were, were yes, missing? Pages, yes, were missing, yes. And so at what stage was this detected? At the presidency was, or at the chief justice's office? It was, it was detected by the EC and they prompted... The judiciary who go back to us that there were there were issues the document submitted, so we had to resubmit again. I think that was like um, January 30th, 2022. So it took like almost four weeks to get that notified uh, that there was there was issues with the document submitted. Now to further calm down, um, we know very well that after the constitution, the chief justice has the power to constitute a panel, basically uh, like what we're trying to speak. And, and get um, a resolution for the people of South. There were issues where they said we had to determine a prima facie case, and we had to go back and forth on that. There were issues where there was um, an injunction placed on the process, uh, which was a challenge by the EC, um, that the Supreme Court cannot go ahead with the case and all that. It's not just the same pre-court procedure that we're expecting. Now, 18 months on the line, a panel was formed, 12th of July, uh, that was supposed to be when we started this whole process. We were told that the new chief justice who forms a part um, of the old panel is not a chief justice. There's a conflict of interest. So a new one should be constituted. And she, she wields the powers to do that with urgency, but then the case was again signed. And we know very well that this is not a case of maybe one person versus the EC, but it has to do with us getting a rep for the people of South. Elections is just next year. These people, these thousands of citizens and people of Ghana who have been disenfranchised by the EC, 
basically have been without a resident parliament for the past three years. We've seen the case of Jackie Christian, and the agency that has been attached to it where there's been um, statements of women trying to sit on the case on a daily basis. We were expecting the same kind of agency to be placed on the fact that the people of Star have no one representing them for the past three years. We didn't see the same trends. We don't see the same lines. And we know very well that this agenda that was given, it's not going to be today or tomorrow that they're going to constitute a new panel. And it's going to be waste of resources on our part because we have a legal team that needs funding to run. So in terms of trying to waste money and go back and forth, waste energies and resources, and know very well that there's been some hollow technicalities being used by the judiciary against us, it, it sends a better statement to say that we have no faith in, in the structure over there, and we, we do not believe that the, the judiciary have the integrity to sit on the case and give us a fair hearing. That, that, these are serious words you're using. Do you not think the judiciary has integrity to, to sit on the case, yeah. that, 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 yeah. to, to sit on this yeah. case? But also, the yeah. issue about conflict of interest raised by the, by the panel, I don't know who, who presided, but raised by the panel is, is an important one. Because the, 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 uh, the, the, the right honorable Chief Justice, you know, Gertrude uh, Tokonu, at the time of the initial empaneling, was not the Chief Justice. Now she's the Chief Justice. She cannot sit on a committee that she has empaneled herself, you know, in this manner. And so the issue about conflict of interest is, is well-founded. And I'm, I'm wondering why you, you choose to have a problem with that. We, we don't have a problem with that. We have a problem with the fact that it's something that needs to be done with agency. She has a power to constitute a new one. Do it. You don't agend the case finding. You don't do that. So basically what we are saying is that there is no end in sight for us. And this is a matter that we're expecting that it needs to be done with, with some level or sense of agency, not from us, but within the access who are supposed to double as a protector of the Constitution. That is the judiciary. So if they are not showing any signs of agency, it, it clearly confuses us that this is something that is just being done to frustrate us, and we won't give them the chance to use us to whitewash the Electoral Commission and its chairperson and, and a deputy. So basically what we have to do is that we don't believe in what they are doing. We've realized that from the back and forth that we've had with them and the ups and downs we've gone through, they don't have the integrity to sit on this case. And we have the democratic right to withdraw the case. And that is exactly what we did. Very well. You do have the right. But for, for people fighting to fix the country, of course, before you set out to, to, to fix the country, you knew it was not going to be a walk in the park. These are the difficulties or the hurdles you will come across. And so you've come across one hurdle and then you, you abandon the process or you, you you give up on the system, I'm wondering how else we will fix the country? How else like, the movement is going to, to, to fix the country? Like like I said initially, this is not one of our cases. We went to court in regards to the COVID um, rights, the imposition of uh, movements, that, the power that parliament gives to parliament, um, the president. It took basically the same two years. We've gone through the same process. We, we finally got judgment, I think, about a month ago. We actually went through it because this, this has nothing to do with people's rights and stuff, and it's not going to directly affect people until the next election comes. We are talking about something that is. So when you have that four-year structure going on, and it's taking us two years, 18 months down the line, there's been, the case hasn't been started. Okay, so what we are saying is that this is something that has a deadline. It's supposed to have a deadline. And it, it needs to be done with a sense of urgency. The same agency that is in charge the Jackie-Pacing case is exactly what we're expecting to be attached to the people of South. But so far, through our parliament, to the judiciary, to even the executive, there's no sense of agency from both arms of government, all three of them, that they want the people of South to have any, any kind of representation 
in Parliament. And we very well know very well that, yes, in Parliament, people vote along party lines. The executive actually is being praised or groomed from a political party standpoint. But the judiciary is one that is supposed to be impartial and have no links or attachments to any political party or partisan or be biased. So when you move to the Supreme Court or you move to the court, you expect to have a fair hearing where logic and structure should play or be the rules of the game. So when you go there, you see very well that this sounds and looks like a deliberate attempt to frustrate you and to use hollow technicalities or legal technicalities to sort of delay cases that should have some critical or deadlines attached to it. And basically, that is how we get it started. If it's going to take 18 months for us to not even move a step forward, we wouldn't have tried the whole thing in the first place. And going for a realizer, okay, we thought that with the panel constituted, at least it's taken over a year now, but we've moved a step forward. Only for the new season to come, and then there is a conflict of interest. We understand that. But you don't agend sign down. You just have the powers. You have the rights and you have the powers using the same constitution to, con to constitute a new panel to continue with where we stopped. So but, but, but Benjamin, adjourning yes. Senedai doesn't mean anything too much. It only means until further notice. It could be yes. tomorrow. So, it could be the day after tomorrow. It could be two months away. So I, I'm not sure you, you, yes. you should be reading too much yes. into it's, the adjournment Senedai. So, so like, like, like I said, it has no deadline, no attachment, basically nothing. If someone tells you that to further notice, it means that there's no agency attached to it, physically. Physically. So uh, we thought that with the lack of agencies on the side of the, um, the judiciary, we, we do not feel that they have the integrity. So like every normal citizen and every civilian within the state, we will certainly write, we've exercised one of it, and we've gone for it to draw the case from the Supreme Court. Um, yes, one could say it takes some time to get some things right and all that. But we do not feel that when it comes to matters that run within a four-year cycle for the next cycle to come again, we should be using the same long-term structure. This is not something that takes forever. It, it's not something that takes forever. We keep on giving excuses that court and legal cases take a longer period to resolve. And that is why people out there do not have faith and trust in our judiciary. It's the main reason why. I see. Uh, Benjamin, thank you so much. Benjamin Darko is one of the petitioners uh, of the Fix the Country movement who petitioned the president to remove uh, or for the removal of the chairperson of the Electoral Commission and her deputies in connection with what the petitioners call the criminal disenfranchisement of Santro Kofi, Akpafu, Lolobi and Lipe uh, people in the 2020 parliamentary elections, we recall, um, the people in that community or the, that enclave did not vote uh, because uh, they they have had to be hyped off the Hohoi constituency because their part of the constituency fell into um, the OT region. And, you know, by law, you cannot have uh, two, one constituency falling in two regions. And because of that and a few other reasons, they were not able to vote. And to date, they do not have a member of parliament. Uh, that is a concern that the uh, physical country movement uh, uh, petitioned against. And they have withdrawn the petition because they say they do not think that the judiciary is minded to go ahead with the matter. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. More of your message is Gasty Man in Brickham says, I do not think that the minority is serious in helping pass this LGBT, anti-LGBT bill. Otherwise, they will not abandon their work in Parliament and follow Jachi Kwesin in court as if they can influence the outcome. 
Daniel Akpaliok from Sandema says the suit against the passage of the anti-LGBT bill is a clear calculated attempt uh, to frustrate the passage of the bill uh, into law. LGBT plus is strained to Ghanaian culture and uh, should not be allowed a foothold in this uh, country. I urge our parliamentarians to remain resolute and take firm steps to ensure that this bill is passed into law. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. Uh, a few other messages. Uh, Prince Henry and Co. Uh, he says he just prays that, it's, that it does not happen as it was said some time ago, and he thinks that there are other hands behind this particular one. Eyewitness News 97.3 City FM. We'll take a short break, return with more. Don't go away. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. You're welcome back. The Public Accounts Committee of Parliament has called on the Ministry of Finance to provide an adequate budget to the Ministry of Health to intensify security measures to staff of Pantang Hospital following threats by land encroachers. This comes after management of the hospital expressed concerns of staff about the activities of land encroachers when it appeared before the committee. Here are excerpts of the sitting where the chairman for the Public Accounts Committee of Parliament, James Kluchiaveji, called for the construction of a fence around the hospital's land to ward off encroaches. So, uh, Clark, let's, let's make a specific um, recommendation for the Ministry of Finance to provide the Ministry more budget purposely for Pantine, for the fencing of the, the land. It's very important. Honorable Kofi. Chairman, thank you very much for the opportunity. And I just want to add my voice to this issue because, like she said, uh, it's come to a lot of public attention, including threats from the nurses there and workers there at the point that they were not going to work again. I think the Minister of National Security himself at the point was there. And if you look at the cost of maintaining security, the national security presence and the police there, if they are so committed, the human division, the human development division of the national security ministry can help in constructing the wall because they have that unit. You had excerpts of the Public Accounts Committee of Parliament sitting. Now, the Ministry of Education has described as false reports that the teacher and nursing training allowances have been cancelled. A statement signed by the spokesperson for the ministry, Chrissy Quating, clarified that government has no intention to terminate these allowances. On the contrary, the government reaffirmed its unwavering commitment to prioritize the training of teachers and nurses by ensuring they receive the necessary financial support. The Ministry of Education would like to clarify once again that the statement that has been attributed to the Minister for Education uh, regarding the cancellation of allowances for teachers and nursing students is untrue, unfounded, and categorically false. And uh, the Ministry uh, denies this unequivocally. Of course, as a Ministry and as a government, we understand the importance of supporting and prioritizing uh, training of, uh, of, of teachers and of course that of nurses and then the government remain committed to providing whatever logistics and resources particularly when it comes to financial assistance uh, within these areas and so we urge the public to uh, disregard such false news and then uh, we also encourage them that uh, they should also take that uh, responsibility that duty to also verify whatever information that they hear 
Uh, and of course, we are also encouraging the media to be circumspect. It is almost like the media is, 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 is sometimes unable to verify uh, some of these uh, issues. And uh, we also encourage them to be uh, circumspect and also at every point to verify uh, such issues with the Ministry of Education. You have the spokesperson for the Ministry of Education, Kwesi Kwaten. Now, the electricity company of Ghana in the Volta region has disconnected part of the Youth Employment Agency over a debt of 10,000 cities. The action forms part of ECG's Operation Zero exercise, which commenced on July 11 and is aimed at recovering outstanding payments for electricity bills from consumers. The Public Relations Office of ECG in the Volta region, Benjamin Obing Entry, shares with City News the names of the other entities that have been disconnected from the national grid. As part of our operation, exercise, we came at collecting all bills that customers owe us. Yesterday in the Dambai district, the Zoom line recycling plant, which was OECG, some 12,000 was disconnected from the national grid. The Youth Employment Agency Regional Office at Dambai, which serves as the OT Regional Capital, was also disconnected for OECG, almost 10,000 Then the whole Park and Garden institution was apprehended for engaging illegal collection yesterday. So as we speak, they are going through the regularization process and then they'll be given a bill to pay. As part of this exercise, also we giving a moratorium to our third settlement. So if you know you are using power for free, maybe your meter is faulty, maybe we'll be giving direct collection. We are humbly appealing to our third settlement to visit the office. This are uh, what you get there because when we visit the first of our customers and realize that you are not in our system, we'll capture you on the floor and give you a flat rate for you to pay something. So this exercise, unlike the previous ones, is focusing on all customers, i.e. customers in our system and customers not in our system. So customers who are even using some foreign meters or meters that did not pass through ECG, when we get there, we regularize the supply for them and then we give them a flat rate to pay at work. That was Benjamin Obin Entry. He is the public relations officer of ECG in the Volta region. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. Now, the government of Ghana, through the finance ministry, uh, is commencing the domestic debt exchange in respect of Ghana's uh, US dollar denominated uh, domestic bonds. And uh, it's, you know, in, in the st three page statement, I, I read portions of that for you. Um, this is on the 5th of December 2022. We launched an invitation to extend the, uh, Ga the Ghana City denominated notes and bonds of the Republic, ESLA PLC and Dachi Trust PLC, uh, for new bonds of the Republic, which exchange successfully concluded on the 21st of February 2023. Approximately 85% of holders eligible to participate in the exchange tendered their bonds and notes for a total of about 82 uh, point nine nine uh, billion dollars uh, uh, tendered in exchange. Uh, while those results represent a significant step towards the, towards achieving the government's objectives in respect of its public debt, the domestic debt exchange program is yet is not yet completed. It says today we are launching a similar invitation to exchange. This time in respect of uh, U.S. dollar denominated bonds issued domestically by the Republic of Ghana and governed by Ghanaian law. Uh, for the avoidance of any doubt, this invitation is separate from the invitation to exchange launched in December 2022 
and concluded in February 2023 and does not involve any uh, Ghana city denominated securities. So the reasons justifying the invitation to exchange uh, launched in December 2022 remain valid uh, today and continue to justify the domestic debt exchange program. The successful completion of this program will allow our country to restore sound public finance and sustainable debt levels and kickstart economic growth following the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the global economic shock, shock created by the war in Ukraine. So this invitation to exchange is an agreement through which uh, holders of eligible bonds will submit their holdings of eligible bonds governed by Ghanaian law and denominated in U.S. dollars for new benchmark government of Ghana bonds denominated in U.S. dollars with the same aggregate principal amount plus applicable capitalized accrued and unpaid interest, and which have in aggregate a lower average coupon and extended average maturity than eligible bonds. Um, so we'll move on um, to, to one of the later paragraphs. It said eligible uh, holders will deliver valid offers at or prior to the expiration date and are accepted by the Republic will receive on the settlement date in exchange for the eligible bonds accepted by the Republic, the same aggregate principal amount distributed across the new bonds due in 2027 and 2028. So 50% in 2027 and then 50% in 2028. So it says that this invitation will expire on the four, will expire at 4 p.m. on August 4, 2023, unless extended or earlier terminated by the Republic. Um, Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. We'll bring you more details on this uh, particular uh, domestic debt exchange in respect of Ghana's U.S. dollar-denominated uh, domestic bonds in a subsequent bulletin. But for now, it is time for City Business News, and Enosafo is ready. Get the details. Every significant financial transaction, every market movement, and all the policies that affect your business. City Business News. Be informed. Time now for City Business News on Eyewitness News, brought to you by your most comprehensive business website, citybusinessnews.com. My name is Eno Suffolk. Coming. Now, Standard Chartered Bank and Access Bank PLC have reached agreements for the sale of Standard Chartered's shareholding in its subsidiaries in Angola, Cameroon, the Gambia, and Sierra Leone. Additionally, they have agreed to transfer Standard Chartered's consumer private and business banking business in Tanzania. Here are excerpts of a statement from the bank announcing the sale. Standard Chartered Bank and Access Bank PLC have entered into an agreement for the sale of Standard Chartered shareholdings in its subsidies in Angola, Cameroon, the Gambia and Sierra Leone and its consumer private and business banking business in Tanzania. A transaction remains subject to the approval of the respective local regulators and the banking regulator in Nigeria. The announcement was made today at Standard Chartered's headquarters in London. Under the agreement, Access Bank will provide a full range of banking services and continuity for key stakeholders, including employees and clients of Standard Chartered's businesses across the five aforementioned countries. Access Bank and Standard Chartered will work closely together in the coming months to ensure a seamless transition with a transaction expected to be completed over the next 12 months.
Those were excerpts of a statement from the bank announcing the sale of Standard Chartered shareholding in subsidiaries in Angola, Cameroon, the Gambia and Sierra Leone, read by my colleague Nashika Caesar. Now, the Institute for Energy Security has emphasized the need to promote the efficient and sustainable exploitation of lithium in Ghana's mining industry. This is on the back of lithium discovery in commercial quantities in the central region. Addressing a national stakeholder dialogue on energy transition which focuses on lithium discovery in Ghana, the executive director of the Institute for Energy Security, Nanamwesi VII, called for proper regulations for the new mineral. What can we do different to, to ensure that as a country we get the best out of this mineral that we will found um, in the central region? First, we should learn from our past mistakes. That's the beginning. Um, how did we miss uh, the opportunities in the domain of gold extraction? How did we miss opportunity in the oil and natural gas? Although we had all the regulation. And so if we could learn the lessons from there, we can transfer... Um, to uh, the domain of lithium and ensure that we get our things right. The next thing that is very important is that we must regulate the sector very well. Um, we must put in the right policies, list, uh, legislations and uh, regulations so that um, we can manage governance very well. But then we must be transparent around these issues. Um, anywhere you have uh, the absence of transparency, then of course there exists corruption. Corruption has been our pain for many years. You find it in the extractive sector. If we transfer the same attitude to the, uh, the extraction of lithium, then of course uh, from the very moment we start, we shouldn't expect anything uh, beneficial for the Ghanaian and particularly the local communities. Nana Mwesi VII is the executive director of the Institute for Energy Security. On his part, the vice chairman of the National Resource Governance Institute Advisory Council, Professor Ernest Aite, highlighted the need for capacity building for the country to maximize the full benefit of the discovery. One point that needs to be made is that uh, lithium on its own cannot make any big difference uh, to the economy of Ghana. Lithium is something that can be used to produce green energy or cleaner energy as we move away from the use of fossil fuels in the production of energy. For the lithium to have any impact on the economy of Ghana, we've got to invest massively in the production of the green energy. We've got to find the investors that are interested. Um, and it's only when we do that that we will see the effects or the impact of uh, lithium discovery in Ghana on the economy. Um, in order to encourage that investment, we have to build capacity. We've got to let our young men and women who go to the universities studying chemistry and other things, studying uh, uh, geology and so on, understand um, the technical details of how such transformation can occur, how the lithium can be used in the production of batteries or whatever, you know. So it's important that we think about how we're going to regulate the production and how we're going to regulate the sale and all those in the marketing of it. It's important. But for me, most important is investing in the capacity to use the lithium properly. That was the Vice Chairman of the National Resource Governance Institute, Professor Ernest Aite.
The governor of the Bank of Ghana, Dr. Ernest Addison, has disclosed that the central bank, together with the Lands and Natural Resources Ministry, has introduced rigorous measures for gold aggregators to ensure an end to the environmentally destructive artisanal small-scale gold mining and its sale. Speaking at the opening of this year's Ghana Mining Expo, attended by players in the extractive sector in Takwadi, Dr. Addison also urged the PMMC to ensure that its purchases is guided by the measures to prevent unapproved mining practices and operation of unlicensed miners. Away from that, the government will now present its 2023 mid-year budget review to Parliament on Tuesday, July 25, 2023. This follows the rescheduling of the date from July 27, as announced by the House. Speaker of Parliament Albin Bagbin had asked the Finance Minister to reconsider the date and present the budget and economic statement before July 27, as the House prepares to adjourn adjourned Sinidai on August 3. Here's the first Deputy Majority Whip, Lydia Sarah Malhassan, announcing the new date for the mid-year budget review. Honorable Speaker, pursuant to the Public Financial Management Act 2015 at 1 at 9.21, the Honorable Minister for Finance is expected to present the mid-year review of the budget statement and economic policy of the government of Ghana for the 2023 financial year to this honorable house on the on Tuesday 25th of July 2023 honorable members are therefore to take note of this day and avail themselves for the presentation. Lydia Hassan is the first deputy majority whip. Now, Finance Minister Ken Oferiata has outlined the government's strategic approach to attract investments and propel the nation's economic growth, emphasizing the importance of interlocking key growth-oriented programs with Africa's aspirations. The minister unveiled a comprehensive plan known as the Ghana Mutual Prosperity Agenda. Addressing a diverse group of domestic and external investors, the minister underscored the government's unwavering commitment to positioning Ghana as an attractive investment investment destination. From a strategic standpoint, we intend to leverage on these engagements and therefore also launch a Ghana Mutual Prosperity Dialogue agenda to ensure both domestic and external investors remain at the core of our growth. How does Ghana become the most important, uh, we call it MICE, uh, meeting, investments, conferencing and exhibition center um, on the continent? How do we support our ease of doing business. How do we attract people into this country? And this will then require um, infrastructure such as what um, um, Dr. Edu and your chairman and board have envisioned and for us in Ghana. To move from where we were in 1960 to create an infrastructure that would really invite people and put us in a good place um, to take advantage of the AFCFTA. Finance Minister Ken Ofuriata there. Finally, the Ghana Investment Promotion Center says it is working with its partner agencies to attract investors who have the potential to transform the local economy. The Investment Center maintains that the key direction for the growth of the economy should be value-added production. 
Here's the chief executive of the Ghana Investment Promotion Center, Yofi Grant. As a region, it's very important that we take advantage of the AFCFTA because it virtually puts us into one tariff-free block that we can optimize to bring about wealth creation on the continent. Admittedly, if you look at the business environment of the continent, only about some 480 companies on the continent generate revenues of a billion dollars a year. We, and of, of that 480, significantly a lot of them are multinationals. And so it's about time that we actually facilitate real indigenous growth on our ground. And of course, as you all well know, the direction that Ghana has chosen under the maximum of a Ghana Beyond Aid is to add value to our raw materials and resources. And so even as we go out to attract investors, we are attracting investors who we believe strategically can enable us add value to our mineral resources. That was the chief executive of the Ghana Investment Promotion Center, Yofi Grant. And that's it for City Business News on Eyewitness News. It was brought to you by your most comprehensive business website, citybusinessnews.com. My name is Eno Safo. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Welcome to the Point Blank segment of Eyewitness News. Tonight on Point Blank, we go to Parliament, where MPs are divided over the report of the Constitutional, Legal and Parliamentary Affairs Committee of the House on the Criminal Offences Amendment Act. The amendment seeks to replace the death penalty with life imprisonment. Although the death penalty was inherited from the colonial administration as a punishment uh, for murder, attempted murder, genocide, piracy and smuggling of gold or diamonds, Ghana has not signed a death warrant for the execution of offenders since 1993. While debating the amendment bill, the lawmakers expressed divergent views on the abolishment of the death penalty. Mr. Speaker, in moving for the second reading of the bill, uh, I would want to draw the House attention to the fact that the object of the bill is to provide for life sentence in place of death penalty. Mr. Speaker, the issue of death penalty has been with us for some time now. Historically, the death penalty was inherited through the colonial administration and it is a colonial relics on our statute book. Mr. Speaker, it will interest the House to know 
that in all the Commonwealth countries today, out of about 56 Commonwealth countries, only seven countries still retain or actively retain the death penalty. About 49 have either effectively abolished the death penalty or are having it um, or are just um, they are abolitionists in de facto. Mr. Speaker, since independence in 1957, Ghana has executed 49 persons, either by firing squad or by hanging. But Mr. Speaker, most of these executions mainly happened during military regimes. Mr. Speaker, the very last execution in Ghana happened on the 17th of July, 1993, where 12 men were killed by firing squad. Mr. Speaker, the current position of Ghana is that we are abolitionists de facto, or abolitionists in practice. Mr. Speaker, this is so because since 1993 to date, Ghana has not signed a death warrant to execute anyone, and that is highly commendable. Mr. Speaker, however, Ghana has made moves to abolish the death penalty. For example, in 2010, the then NDC government um, began the process of constitutional review and commissioned a constitutional review com uh, commission. And after they went round the, the country and collated views, the Constitutional Review Commission um, um, recommended that the death penalty be replaced by life imprisonment. Mr. Speaker, the then government, uh, through government white paper, accepted these recommendations. But Mr. Speaker, steps to be taken to address this were not complete until it lost power. Mr. Speaker, but since then, various efforts, including stakeholders, Death Penalty, uh, UK, Amnesty International, other stakeholders and CSUs have been calling for the need to abolish death penalty. Mr. Speaker, in these engagements, we have had several consensus. For example, a political consensus. A political consensus because the then administration of the NDC began this process, and as soon as this bill was laid in Parliament, the current government, led by His Excellency Nanadu Dankwafufuado, also has openly endorsed the position of the bill. And this year, the President voted at the UN, uh, at the UN in favor of the resolution to end the use of death penalty. Mr. Speaker, apart from the political consensus, we also have religious consensus because the Christian Council and all the other religious actors have also given position on this that suggests that there was a need for Ghana to move away from the use of the mandatory death penalty. Mr. Speaker, we also have judiciary consensus because, Mr. Speaker, when you look at the case of um, Dexter Johnson versus the Republic, um, the Leonard Justice Duce JSC made the recommendation that it is time for Ghana to move away 
from the use of the death penalty. And Mr. Speaker, um, bringing my, um, my uh, moving of this motion to an end, I would, I would say that all the consensus that we have built over the years supports the fact that it is time for Ghana to amend the, um, its laws so that it can align with our practices. Mr. Speaker, with this, I beg to move. Mr. Speaker, the Criminal Offences Amendment Bill 2022 was laid in Parliament and referred to the committee. Your committee met on 27th May 2023 and deliberated on the issue. In attendance at the committee meeting was Justice Dennis Dominic Ajay, Justice of the Court of Appeal, Mrs. Agnes Kote, Papa Fio, Chief State Attorney at the Office of the Ministry of Justice and Attorney General Department, and other technical staff from the ministry, uh, Mr. Nganga Ahunka Koda, Ghana Bar Association, and other members of the civil society organization was in attendance. The speaker, the background of this particular report is stated in paragraph 4.0. I intend to urge upon the Hansard Department to capture the entire report as having been read in its entirety. The speaker, the object of the bill is captured in paragraph 5.0. The purpose of the bill is to amend the Criminal and Other Offenses Act 1960 at 29 to substitute the penalty of life imprisonment for death penalty and to provide for related matters. The Speaker, the, there are arguments for and against the abolishment of the death penalty. The Speaker, I must state in brief that those who are against the abolishment of the death penalty are of the view and they believe in the principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The Speaker, if you can terminate somebody's life, the issue is why should you be alive? If you look at it on the basis of human rights, you have taken away somebody's rights. Why should you have the right to live? And Mr. Speaker, if you look at the argument for the abolishment of the death penalty, one, the first is that there is judicial uncertainty. It doesn't mean that if you go to prison, everybody in prison is there because they have really committed a, fact, a, a crime in relation to which they are in prison. And Mr. Speaker, life loss can never be regained. And there is a judicial principle of it's better you leave 99% uh, guilty person free than to convict one innocent person. Assuming the death penalty is carried out, it means the person is going to be executed to death by either hanging or firing squad. And in future, it turns out that the offense for which the person is punished, he really have not committed that particular 
offense, you cannot bring the person back to life. Mr. Speaker, the other reason is that Ghana is a signatory to a lot of international treaties that are in favor of abolishing uh, death penalty and substituting with life imprisonment. And as uh, a member of those organizations, we must go in accordance with the details of those organizations. We must comply with the treaties and conventions for the country to be compliant. In view of that, the majority are in favor of abolishing the death penalty. Speaker, the other reason is that for some time in Ghana, or for several years now, offenses for which death penalty should apply, the judges will pronounce the punishment, but no president is ready to append the signature for the person to be executed. So in reality, it is converted into life imprisonment. So why should death penalty still continue to be on our statute book? It is for this reason that the committee is recommending to the House to adopt its report and pass the death penalty bill into law. The speaker, the committee further look at the bill and of the view that we have the committee received fiscal impact analysis reports and are of the view that Section 100 of the Public Financial Management Act has been fully complied with the speaker, the death penalty bill from the committee's point of view must be passed into law. The speaker, on this note, I read the conclusion of the report into detail. The committee, in considering the Criminal Offenses Amendment Bill 2022, particularly in a stakeholders' engagement organized by the sponsors of the bill to listen to the views of Ghanaian, the general consensus among all the stakeholders was that the death penalty should be replaced with life imprisonment. The responsibility now rests on Parliament to take the necessary actions, to take the necessary actions, as noted in uh, Litma House. Uh, the Litma House Guideline for the Commonwealth adopted in June 1988. The legislative function is the primary responsibility of Parliament as the elected body, elected body representing the people. Judges may be constructive and purposive in the interpretation of legislation, but must not usurp Parliament's legislative function. After extensive consultation, the committee is of the view that continuous retention of the death penalty in the criminal statute makes a mockery of justice. And the mere fact that for almost three decades, 
Presidents of the Republic have found it unnecessary to sign execution warrants. It's an indication that Ghana does not need the law. The committee accordingly recommends to the House to adopt its report and pass the Criminal Offenses Amendment Bill 2022 into law in accordance with Article 106 of the 1992 Constitution. Mr. Speaker, I so submit. I'm still trying to understand why this uh, proposed amendment. Speaker, uh, countries do take drastic decisions for certain reasons. At the moment, we've been hearing weapons of mass destruction. Those countries don't get those weapons of mass destruction because they want to blow up another country. They are there to deter and to let people know that they, have, they are prepared in case certain things happen. Um, Honorable Sosu have indicated that from 1993 or so, no president have been able to, um, if I hear him right, have been able to sign for the death penalty, even though it is in our statute book. Definitely we need to leave this so that it will be a deterrent to others. Um, speaker, both Muslims and Christians, we all believe in the eye for an eye. But in, 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 in certain instances where you will see that, or you are very much aware that if I kill somebody, I will still be alive. People end up uh, ending people's lives or shortening people's lives with an excuse that if I end your life, I wouldn't be killed. I think that for the fact that no president or for a while, we have not been able to execute anybody. We should still leave this in our books. We should leave it because it will serve as a deterrent to others. We should leave it because society has responsibility to look or an obligation to look after the welfare of its citizens. So it should not be a case that because one or two misfortunes might happen, it should always be the case that if you kill somebody or end somebody's life, they also have families and their, their lives also matter. You should not be killed or you should allow to go into prison uh, for life. So I think that we should look at this and like Honorable Agalaga said, the, proposed, uh, the proposal that has been brought will not end here. At the end of the day, we will still have to look at Article 33 and be able to see that if we actually get a referendum to support this. And I think it will be difficult to pass. So we should not attempt to shake it in an excuse that uh, nobody uh, or somebody can make a mistake to kill, kill an innocent person. We should also be able to know that these laws were also made, not necessarily to kill, but to serve as a deterrent to others. I thank you, Speaker. The arguments they have advanced this evening in favor of the motion are very spurious and have no merit at all. The arguments in favor of the motion are unmeritorious. If you take life and they want to try you for murder, you know the process. One, by a jury of seven people with a judge directing them on points of law. They are the ordinary people they take in the society that this is an ordinary man who has taken somebody's life. We do not want a technical man to determine his or her life. Let's put a jury there, people of the same community, to try him. So it's a jury trial of seven men or seven people. The judge is only there to direct them on points of law. Then they go through several years of trial. You understand what jury trials are, murder trials are, several years. Then 
the decision of the jury must be unanimous. Seven of them must agree that the fellow is guilty. If one of them says that he is not sure or is not guilty, then the man is free or that, that type of thing. That is very rigorous. Besides this rigorous procedure, the man has opportunity, no, he has a right of counsel. Once they charge you for murder, whether you have money to hire a lawyer or not, the state will provide you with a lawyer. The state does that. Because they don't want you, they don't want to take your life without giving the opportunity to defend yourself. So the state gives you a lawyer, free of charge. He defends you the number of years that you are standing trial. Even if, he, even if you are convicted, you have several opportunities at your disposal. From the high court, you can appeal to the court of appeal. Your lawyer will do so, free of charge for you. From there, if the appeal court judge also air, he will go to the Supreme Court. The man has gone through all this trial, all these years. Then you say that, oh, there is judicial uncertainty. What is certain? With the greatest respect, this is a lopsided argument. It has no weight. It has no merit. And they did not balance the argument with the trauma. Look, how are murders committed in this country? Some of them. It's unfortunate that some of our colleagues are not here who have lost their, lost their loved ones through murder. 2 a.m., an intruder, an intruder comes into my house. He climbs a ladder. He goes to look for a ladder that comes into my house. Climbs up, breaks open my door and window, then kills me. Or if before then, he would have raped my wife, my partner lying with me. While my, my, I'm looking at it, he's raping my wife. Then I see that is not enough. He takes my life and he kills me. Then this man has human rights. He has a human right. I, I have no human right. You should come and take my life within 30 minutes. He has trying 30 minutes to the next one. I have no right. And he has a right to live. What right? What right, Mr. Peter? Please, I personally know about the trauma you went through concerning your own. But this one, please, let's go according to the rules, not emotions. The India for the Commonwealth Bar Conference and in paper paper on this same subject, which received enormous applause uh, in his capacity, former capacity, as the chairman of the tribunal, I'm sure. He had occasion to deal with some of these matters, and that had probably influenced his sentiment in this area of law. But look, these are facts. But unfortunately, I vehemently also disagree with him because I have a particular case referred to me uh, just this weekend of somebody also attempting to defend himself, <coughs> and in the process, used the same equipment carried up by his assailant to kill him. And that person came before the jury. The jury returned a verdict of not guilty. And upon influence by the presiding judge, that go back and look at it again. And they came back and returned the verdict of guilty. Such a situation exists. And such an innocent person has been convicted and sentenced to death by hanging, save that no president wants to execute the hanging. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any opportunity for him to go on appeal. I mean, because of the procedural error. So because that person has been sentenced to life imprisonment, 
we uh, have an opportunity to go for the appeal and probably uh, seek his uh, release. Mr. Speaker, it is important for us to look at that single person who is innocent, who would otherwise also be convicted to death. We are not saying that the, the, the people who are found guilty should be released. What we are saying is that let us give them punishment that is commensurate with the offense they've committed, save that they should not be killed, so that in the event that in future <coughs> there is evidence to suggest that they didn't really commit a crime after all, then they will have a second chance before the law. If we destroy such a person, we would have killed the opportunity for him to even repent, and repentance is godly. And there are people who would have gone through all kinds of crime and would have repented, and we have series of them having become now even uh, uh, champions of human rights. You had some members of parliament there debating the Criminal Offences Amendment Act, which seeks to replace the death penalty with life imprisonment. The debate got charged at some point. But we see how that goes. That's all for our program tonight. Show has been produced by Nana Kobina Welsing. Technical assistance provided by Daniel Squashi. Earlier, you heard Rita Mensa. My name is Salom Adunu. Make a date with me tomorrow at 9 a.m. on the big issue as we discuss the topical issues for the week. Have a good evening. City News, we speak first. Reach our hotline on 0302-224959 and get interactive on Facebook, City 97.3.